Welcome to this new episode of A Shot in the Arm podcast season two. I'm Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast about global health and human rights, how we make sense of biomedical innovation and apply it to our daily lives. In planning this episode, I hoped originally to explore harm reduction, but I think the conversation with my guest will actually explore a question that straddles health and human rights, the not-so-often-told story of the role of lawyers in beating back epidemics and promoting human rights. You can see it perhaps most visibly in the area of harm reduction and that services for people who inject drugs in order to reduce infectious diseases like HIV and viral hepatitis. There have been significant biomedical innovations in the last 30 years in helping people who use drugs, medicines like methadone that are used to treat drug dependency, with many more in the pipeline. But the crashing through the gates innovation is harm reduction, itself a, a, a raft of different public health and policy and legal services, which started with the strategy of clean needle exchange. It's not just a question of medicine pushing the boundaries of what can be acceptable society, but how people within the movements, people within the legal system, how they have helped activists to persuade politicians to act. This week, we meet Kathleen Fisher, respected litigator, human rights and women rights activist, who literally has saved thousands of lives through her relentless protection of HIV prevention services. Now, we can start with a definition of harm reduction that's used by Harm Reduction International and adopted by the UN Office of Drugs and Crime, UNODC, and they define it as policies, programmes and practices that primarily reduce the adverse health, social and economic consequences of the use of legal and illegal psychoactive drugs without necessarily reducing drug consumption. And this approach emerged in the early 1980s at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic as policymakers, health workers and lawyers realised that punitive strategies to arrest people who inject drugs had no impact on inverting new infections and in fact they actually pushed HIV infection underground. So instead, AIDS organisations started to provide clean needles to people who inject drugs rather than solely trying to achieve abstinence. Since those days, harm reduction has come to mean much, much more. As well as needle exchange, services include safe injection sites, easy access to opioid replacement therapy like methadone, primary health care and mental health services that, that people who inject drugs might otherwise not access. Harm reduction services are considered to have been born in Europe and Australia in the mid-1980s, and programmes rapidly followed suit in New York and San Francisco. You can find programmes now all over the world, including the Ukraine, China, Brazil, and famously in Portugal, which has incorporated harm reduction seamlessly into its national health service and has seen a breathtaking reduction in HIV and other infectious diseases. But... It's to San Francisco that we return, because that's a place where medicine and the law come crashing together. San Francisco's first HIV injection drug use programme was launched in November 1988 on Eddy Street, west of Taylor Street. It's called Prevention Point, and it provided people with clean needles, safe injection equipment and HIV awareness information, all wheeled about in a baby carriage or pram, 
as those of us who speak English English like to call it. The Mary Poppins, you might say, of harm reduction. But this programme caused extensive controversy in California and the US. In the early 90s, state legislators tried. They tried and grappled with the issue, and they tried to pass laws, only to have them vetoed by the state of California Governor Pete Wilson in 92, 93 and 94. So, almost as an act of desperation and to bypass uh, state opposition, the communities in San Francisco pressed elected officials to declare a citywide state of emergency in 92, And this enabled the city to enact life-saving interventions. They were able to allocate $138,000 to the city's needle exchange program. Well, today, the San Francisco Community Health Center and the San Francisco AIDS Foundation and the Department of Public Health say they distribute 4.45 million needles to 22,000 injection drug users. And for those of us working to fight the AIDS epidemic, Harm reduction is an established component of the HIV public health response. But not all countries are willing or able to embrace the hard legal change of decriminalising needle exchange. When we pause to consider people most affected by HIV through shared needles now, maybe our imaginations go to the blasted post-industrial wastelands of Eastern Europe where pasty-skinned and distracted young people share needles while avoiding persecution from the hard-men dictators and their oligarchs who who really frankly eliminate them rather than treat them. And that opposition, from hesitancy to downright opposition, is a prejudice sitting just there under the surface. The balance towards supportive legal policy driven by evidence-informed public health, is by no means a given. Whether it's restricting access to reproductive health and related services or recriminalisation of same-sex relationships, we need to constantly look back to our recent past and learn from our successes and failures. Just because we obtain all our news, all our information and content from our personal devices does not mean that the past has no purpose. So, To help us make sense of the battle between um, health and the law and to hear one's person's story of their persistence and passion, I'm honoured to welcome today to a Shot in the Arm podcast, my dear friend, Cathy Kathleen Fisher. Welcome to a Shot in the Arm, Cathy. Thank you, Ben. So a, a little bit about you for people who don't know you and correct me where I'm wrong. You're an attorney for, for international people. That means lawyer. Correct. And uh, you're, a, you're a partner in the hugely respected Calvo, Fisher & Jacob. You've got uh, offices in Guam and uh, oh, San Francisco and Saipan. All true. And uh, you came up the ranks of Morrison Foster. You were the head of the litigation department from 93-96. You are a get-out-the-vote champion, particularly in the state of Nevada and um uh, was there during the uh 2016 presidential election and the 2018 midterms i have to correct you a little there that was really my daughter maya and i was just uh, doing what she told me to do ah uh, that's and that uh, sort of brings me to uh, how we know each other through pangea um you were a board member and i was the chief executive of pangea and i did exactly as you told me to do so <laughs> Oh, Ben, I, ben, I wish. <laughs> You've had a long history in the um, 
HIV response particularly. Um, you won the 2004 uh, Leadership Award from the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. And as I said, uh, you uh, were on my board at Pangea for a number of years. Um, you're California, born and bred. Can you, can you tell us a bit about your upbringing and, and how service became important to you? Well, I was raised in Arenda. You know, I'm a third-generation Californian. My uh, parents, uh, one of them was an engineer. My mother, you know, was a, a writer and worked in advertising agencies. She was kind of, uh, if you've seen Mad Men, she was Peggy. <laughs> and uh, I, I think that in terms of uh, service, I am really just such a child of the 60s and the anti-war movement. And, you know, when I was in uh, law school, you know, back in the Stone Age in the kind of early 70s, you know, we were watching the Watergate hearings. I mean, how can you not be, you know, part of, you know, what's going on in our country now and, you know, more in general? Um, the really wonderful part of the legal profession, you know, that is about service. And at that time was uh, part of the civil rights movement. I went to Martin Luther King Law School in Davis. And uh, it's just always been a part of who I am, particularly as a lawyer. What drew you to law uh, as opposed to other social social movements, as it were? Well, frankly, growing up watching Perry Mason and just completely identifying with Perry Mason and uh, till you know, at various times uh, people explained to me, you know, that I wasn't a man. <laughs> and, you know, uh, and at that point there were, you know, no one you ever saw in a courtroom on television or otherwise, you know, who was a... Uh, woman lawyer. And so after I graduated from college, I was, I did social work, went to a community organization in East Oakland, uh, where we were, you know, working with people like the Black Panther Party, doing breakfast programs and other social justice, you know, issues. And uh, the people who were on the scene were lawyers, you know, um, helping us to get shit done, as, uh, you know, we used to say back then and still now. You know, it was legal aid lawyers. It was National um, uh, uh, Lawyers Guild lawyers, you know, some of whom, you know, are now very famous in the subject of books, some of whom were just there for us every day, you know, figuring out how to help people just, you know, get through the maze of issues uh, that concerned, uh, you know, poor people mostly at the time, but also all those structural issues that have to do with, you know, why you become a lawyer. I, I want to come back to the, the role law has played in many of the, the social movements you've been, been a part of. But first, um, your, your career kicks off, basically, sort of the same time HIV does. And, and many of the people we've had on the show, um, like both of us, I guess, have have found ourselves coming of age, um, and professionally, particularly so, as HIV hits, as the AIDS epidemic hits. And, and, and they've either found their life's purpose through HIV, or they found that it's pulled them in directions that they really hadn't expected. Um, how did you first come across HIV? 
in just a very personal way. The um, uh, when I started at uh, Mofo, you know, in 1976, uh, the um, uh, managing partner at the time, who uh, was a great fighter for all of us who were, you know, women in the profession, um, uh, um, uh, became ill early in the epidemic. He was completely in the closet. My kind of one of my very close, really friends, you know, uh, um, a hugely successful, you know, U.S. Supreme Court law clerk went to another firm in the city, also got sick early in the epidemic. And so it was really just completely and totally personal. And uh, although I must say it was, you know, at this time when as women, we were facing a lot of obstacles too, you know, in law firms, in the professions, there was, you know, just early stage women's rights issues being litigated, you know, in the courts. And there was just this alliance that was formed between us and the gay men in our communities within our network of friendships, you know, that uh, just made it very personal. And uh, then my best friend at, at MOFO, who kind of came years later, again, highly credentialed individual, you know, uh, who came late in the day and, you know, um, out of a Republican administration mm-hmm. and uh, out of the Reagan administration, for God's sake, you know, and uh, he came and, you know, he explained to me that I was a monk, a liberal who, you know, knew nothing. And I explained to him that he was a fascist Republican pig. <laughs> and we became really like best friends. Yeah. And, uh, um, and uh, he um, uh, got sick and died, you know, uh, um, later in the epidemic, right before, in 1994. Oh, just before the just appearance be- Just of the before oh. all of the Lazarus stories. So, you know, I just had this, you know, completely continuing personal motivation. So, so two things. Um, I guess I should explain to our, our our listeners and viewers, and and that is that, um, and this is a, a a mistake I made when I first came to the Bay Area. Mofo is not what you might think it is. It is actually the abbreviation of Morrison Foster, the law firm, right? <laughs> Yes, uh, that is true. And and then there's also something, you know, as you talk about some of your colleagues, there's there's a bit of the Ray Cohen about this, the, you know, angels in America, the um uh the the evil New York lawyer who was uh horrendously opposed to all forms of civil rights, but who unfortunately um in in the Angels of America trilogy um himself is struck down by HIV. Did you see a lot of that sort of self-discrimination going on around you? Certainly no one like Ray, uh, Roy Cohen was ever... Roy Cohen, that's right. Roy Cohen was ever, you know, um, part of any circle that involved, you know, Morrison and Forster or anything that, you know, I ever met up with uh, in my travels as a lawyer. And I must say, you know, I think only in retrospect and the perspective of that, that part of the reason that uh, MOFO itself, 
you know, became such a powerful force for good, you know, during the epidemic was that it was formed in really response to the East Coast power structure and firms and uh, culture, if you will. But what I do really, um, uh, um, what did really happen is that the person I described as the managing partner, when he died, you know, uh, I had to give, uh, I had to read the 23rd Psalm at Grace Cathedral to the entire legal community. And uh, we couldn't mention the word AIDS in San Francisco in 1989 because his family did not know that he was sick and was never told that. And in 1994, when my best friend died and we did a funeral in D.C., we could not mention that he died of HIV because of the issues that were presented for our um, uh, then D.C. office about what was what was going on in Washington at the time. Wow. And you think, you know, here we are entering 2020 and so much has changed and yet so little. I mean, there was a question I wanted to ask you. And um, as you know, I've been heavily involved in the business response to AIDS really since its inception. And we always used to look back to these sort of legacy companies um, here in the Bay Area that were supposed to be champions of of human rights and champions of a more progressive approach to HIV. But there's a real tension, a real battle that that people have to go through in order to get there, in order to be able to, to, to talk about HIV in the workplace, talk about one of your colleagues um, has died of HIV-related causes. So, well, yes, um, uh, and yes, and you know the um, uh, the powerful thing about what happened in San Francisco, and I, I speak better about the law firms than I do the 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 companies is that at least we got to have the conversation full out, you know, and have the hard conversations about are we going to mention that our colleague uh, died in the legal community and what he died of at a point where, you know, uh, the Chronicle wouldn't uh, um, print those obituaries. And uh, so one of the law firms took on the Chronicle, you know, um, uh, my friends law firm, you know, um, uh, we happened to honor the wishes of the two people who had died. But to this day, you know, that was the education for me in, in that, remember what um, uh, the, the famous ACT UP uh, uh, formulation was, silence is death. Mm. Silence was death for two of my, you know, best friends and colleagues, you know, during the epidemic you know, in large part as a result of the decisions that the law firm and they mediated about their illness. So, you know, it was complicated. So uh, talk about complications and you're never one, you're never backwards in coming forwards, as uh, my my grandmother was used to say. You you Mm. became heavily involved in legislation and and legal action and speaking out truth to power around harm reduction and at the introduction uh, to this episode I, I i gave a description of what harm reduction is needle exchange and the range of services that go with that um why was that so important to you why was harm reduction so important to you 
Well, first of all, we didn't call it harm reduction, you know, and perhaps it's my perspective uh, as a lawyer, but, you know, by the, the time you're talking about, you know, I was on the mayor's HIV task force, which uh, comprised uh, just an extraordinary group of people. Art Agnos uh, originally formed it back in the late 80s. And so Don Francis Mm -hmm. was the head of that uh, task force. And there was the, the, everyone you can imagine, the Archbishop of San Francisco, you know, the, um, uh, a number of other, you know, incredible people, Lee, Lee Smith, the head of Levi International. And I got to be on it because I was the managing partner of uh, MOFO's San Francisco office at the time. You know, bless their hearts that they put me in the with the opportunity to do that. So that was a huge education for, you know, all of our different constituencies about what we now call harm reduction. So needle exchange, you know, about the same time as the immigration barriers, you know, to people coming into the city, about the time as the understanding was shifting about the role of HIV uh, drug use and also the prevalence uh, in the African-American and Latino communities. Mm. So it was really through education you know, including by, you know, just some of the complete heroes of the epidemic, uh, um, uh, Marty Delaney, mm. you know, from Project Inform. If, if you, who, if you've ever heard Marty Delaney, you know, who's a Jesuit by background, um, uh, talk to the Archbishop of San Francisco about, uh, um, I, I'm not sure you would call this uh, harm reduction, maybe it's prevention, but he was talking to him about foam sex and the necessity of promoting and permitting, you know, phone sex, you know, as as part of the continuum of trying to prevent the spread of HIV. So so Marty Delaney, the the one of the co-founders of Project Inform, who who sadly passed, I guess, around ten years ago. Uh, uh, and and it's funny that you you talk about him um, talking with the Archbishop of, of San Francisco because. In the mid-2000s, I was at UNAIDS and was assigned to be the focal point to the mission of the Holy See in Geneva. And (laughs) we would be spending our time saying, well, no, you really need to correct these facts around, you know, condoms, you know, do protect against HIV. And and, and frankly, having condoms with holes in them would would really take away the whole point of condoms. Uh, That being said, the Catholic Church, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, was absolutely incredible in terms of scaling up HIV treatment. It was really on prevention that was that was the challenge. But but in preparing for this interview, Kathy, I've been I've been looking back at the records and looking at the history of what happened in San Francisco and and it does feel a little sanitized and that that somehow San Francisco was this beacon of progression um and, and setting the way. Was that the case? And if it was, how did you? How did it come about? What was your role in it? Well, first of all, I'm not sure, you know, about the just the whole retroactive version of uh, San Francisco being the beacon. In retrospect, it felt, you know, very scary and messy, and uh, with lots of heartbreaking setbacks. 
and uh, um, and then you know the just sense of urgency, you know, that drove everyone forward, where everything was on the table. And uh, I give you know in terms of the task force I've described that I think really educated broad sections of the community not too late in the epidemic, you know, we're talking late 80s. Um, uh, there was, uh, you know, I give a lot of credit to Don Francis and his just complete sense of urgency about, you know, people who were dying. And then I give a lot of credit to, you know, the AIDS Foundation and to... The San Francisco AIDS the Foundation. The Sa- San Francisco AIDS Foundation. And uh, their just incredible focus on the mission, you know. I mean, as lawyers, you know, you're always serving the mission. Mm -hmm. But uh, the fact was that everything was on the table, you know, civil disobedience. One of my my regrets is that uh, before we got uh, needle exchange sort of kind of legalized, you know, um, uh, um, Don Francis and I were planning to do a show trial in Mm. San Francisco um, because the epidemiology wasn't there. We didn't have the facts. And the thing that lawyers, I think, really do bring to the table, you know, is we're all about, you know, having the facts. And uh, all of the debate back then about whether you wanted to promote, uh, you know, drug use, you know, versus uh, whether you wanted to do harm reduction about AIDS by passing out needles, there just wasn't the... There was the epidemiology, but we needed to make it exciting and current and part of a court proceeding in order to make it real. So we had a whole plan around that. So the idea, so the show trial would have been uh, not perhaps Soviet style, but more of let's a show and tell trial for the city of San Francisco to know what we do know and, and why what we now call harm reduction was was the way to go. And you weren't able to do that. Well, we succeeded and avoided um, the just fabulous opportunity to do that um, uh, through other means. But um, no, not Soviet style at all. What we planned was a Brown versus Board of Education trial where scientists uh, from all over the country, you know, would show up with studies about the efficacy, you know, of... uh, you know, of uh, ex- of needle exchange, uh, basically. Um, it would be in San Francisco Superior Court. It would be public, so there would certainly be a public education function, you know, but we actually were looking for findings, you know, about the fact that um, it was efficacious and legal if it was an emergency, mm. okay? But, you know, and... But that's me, you know, I'm a trial lawyer. I would have loved to put, you know, all those, you know, just heroes of the AIDS movement on the stand and and the um, nature of the epidemic at that point, you know, where, you know, we were really looking at, you know, how to deal with the HIV drug use and neonatal transmission and all of that, which was not understood. And, and what I'm finding so interesting about this is you know, here I am trying to ask so why needle exchange why why injection drug users but but what you're saying is that it was there was an emergency for everything everybody knew that everything was was sort of bound together and we needed multiple you know a, a sort of a, a, a action across all fronts 
Yes, that's exactly right. Um, uh, um, it was really all of the above and all of the above immediately and urgently. See, I find that fascinating. And, I, and so I, I'm, I'm going to share something and mention no names, but, but maybe about that time, and, and you know, here we are in the early to mid-90s, um, I'm in London as a, 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 a very much younger man than I am now, and early days of AIDS, of AIDS advocacy and AIDS action. And I can remember people saying to me that we really didn't want to touch drug users because they might detract from the hard work and achievements we were beginning to get from, you know, uh, normalizing white gay men who perhaps had greater and inverted commas needs for services than drug users. And it felt wrong at the time. <clears throat> Pardon me. And there were people who were saying this is this is absolutely abhorrent. But but did San Francisco uh, experience this sort of um, uh, let's say, rating of need. People were more deserving than other people. You know, I am probably the um, uh, third or fourth level of uh, the ability to really tell the truth about that as because my perspective uh, was as a lawyer. But I would certainly say that there was a feeling that the prior, there, there was a great sense of so many people are dying and there's so many needs and the AIDS Foundation in San Francisco, you know, should really be spending scarce resources uh, on um, uh, gay men. And, and truly the success of the model around that, you know, was an argument for that. But what I will say is that all of the people who were really knowledgeable about the epidemic, the, the doctors who are well known to you, the heads of AIDS organizations who were well known to you just really pushed against that and educated all of us about, you know, what the nature of the epidemic was and drug use and, and about what, what drug users were all about. So mm. there was this, you know, sort of really robust discussion in which all of the corporate types like myself, lawyers and otherwise, were saying, well, yeah, suppose we pass out clean needles, you know, these people are a mess, you know, they're not really going to use them, you know, I mean, how is that going to stop the spread of anything, you know, because uh, these drug users are, you know, just not people you can count on to use these clean needles. And so there was a huge amount of education by about, uh, you know, people such as ourselves, you know, about the fact that, um, these are people who have who have very organized lives. Yes. Who you talk about uh, compliance with you know a regime? They spend a lot of time and energy trying to get drugs and uh, the paraphernalia that they use to inject drugs. They are going to be the most compliant population on the face of the planet about using clean needles. And I mean that seems like you're nodding at like of course, but. Back in the day, given how people felt about uh, drug users, you know, who were just these messes that no one wanted to see that couldn't organize their lives and, you know, let's just ignore them. You know, that was a novel concept. Absolutely. It was it was very messy. And the mess was, if you like, on the policy side. Uh, very quickly data came through showing that needle exchanged work. And yes, absolutely, drug users 
could absolutely control and, man and manage this. You, you, I, I'm nodding because it makes me think of a, uh, a shameless plug here for a, another podcast that I absolutely adore, The Oath with um, Chuck Rosenberg. He recently interviewed Joyce Vance, who's the uh, U.S. attorney of the Northern District of Alabama, and during the Clinton administration, she was responsible for law enforcement around heroin deaths. And her initial approach, and she talks about this in the show, but her initial approach was, you know, precisely, you know, uh, uh, drug users cannot be expected to manage needle exchange. And it's much better for us to take a uh, more uh, prosec um, uh, adv adversarial approach, uh, persecute and prosecute. And she said she was educated very early on about the the primacy, if you like, of a public health approach and much better to engage and to treat than to try and persecute and contain. Well, I I will say that, that I'm sure not all lawyers are like this, but uh, whether they're prosecutors or big firm lawyers or in-house lawyers or local or state government lawyers, mostly what they're about is, first of all, trying to solve the problem. Mm. I mean, in an evidence-based way. And uh, if they see something like imprisoning and persecuting everyone that's not solving the problem, you know, most but not all are really able to see that. The second thing is most lawyers believe in the rule of law. And so, you know, there's a way in which my faith, you know, in a show trial or in, you know, talking to other lawyers, uh, like in the case of Needle Exchange, uh, the uh, city attorney for San Francisco, you know, is the solution mm. to a lot of problems, including it was back in the day. You know, the trouble with the legal system, you know, about something like Needle Exchange and the show trial I didn't get to have you know, with Don Francis, is that it's not fast. Too many people die before mm. you get it done. So the much better avenue is if you can talk, uh, you know, um, in this case, you know, Louise Rennie, who was the city attorney in San Francisco, into um, making it legal enough to yeah. pass out to yeah. pass out needles, right? Making it legal enough. But then this also, you know, as we as we have rewritten history or, or sanitized history, you look at the San Francisco City's uh, state of emergency in, what, 1993. Um, and, and, and so that wasn't something that was bravely done by um, elected officials to, to take a stand against the state and the federal government. This was really pressure coming from the community uh, and from scientists and advocates to get this done. No. That, well, yes, yes, is the answer to that. Um, it's absolutely true that the politicians, including the politicians in San Francisco, and uh, I include, you know, the mayor, the board of supervisors, everyone, you know, embraced uh, needle exchange like they were embracing a porcupine. I mean, they just wanted nothing to do with it. The excuse, which uh, remained true, you know, throughout you know, I think probably most of at least the uh, until the mid 90s is that it was illegal under state law, you know, I mean, and it was going to remain illegal under state law. And so the what can we do? You know, we're just the city and county of San Francisco, you know, was a really, I think, welcome 
you know, mm. sort of buffer for the politicians who did not want uh, people giving out needles to drug users. I mean, just period, end of story. One of the one of the other areas that you were involved in, and it's it's uh, one of the the darker sides of the AIDS response, which we we get from time to time, and we're 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 seeing seeing this kind of denialism in a in a different way at the moment with uh, vaccine hesitancy. But but San Francisco had its experience in the early two thousands of AIDS denialism. So you know, just as President Mbeki in South Africa is. Uh, uh, convening his panel of AIDS denialists to explain why he shouldn't provide antiretrovirals in South Africa, um, a wave of AIDS denialism was hitting the city, and particularly a chapter of ACT UP, Golden Gate. And I, I know you were involved in that, and I, I don't know the extent to which you feel you're comfortable to be able to share some of that, some of that story, and 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 what really here in 2020 we we should learn from that. Well, I'm not sure what we should learn from that, but I do feel completely free to share the story, which played out in a very public way. You know, what uh, um, I, I mean, this is a role for the court system. I tried uh, two cases, one on behalf of, you know, uh, Project Inform and the other on behalf of the AIDS Foundation to get injunctions uh, against uh, those AIDS denialists who were attacking um, scientists and attacking the heads of those organizations, throwing kitty litter at them, you know, uh, fake blood, you know, um, really violently assaulting them, um, uh, including in, um, uh, at uh, conventions, uh, you know, in South, all over the world, right, but also here in San Francisco. And so much, this has its uh, complete legal analogy in the, um, uh, in the um, uh, reproductive rights uh, abortion provider context. And that was going on, you know, had gone on quite a bit before, you know, the injunctions that I was getting on behalf of uh, the Project Inform and the, um, the AIDS Foundation. And those folks, uh, who most of whom um, had HIV, um, mm. uh, they were there. There's there's some untold stories about it that are really important here. You know, first of all, they were hugely funded. What really, right. what really um, activated them to make them extraordinarily dangerous and effective was that. Uh, they were funded by a pot club, a medical pot club here in San Francisco. And so they had lots of money to go around the world and to, you know, spread their, you know, um, violence uh, and, their, and their message, you know, uh, that uh, um, uh, um, isn't well known. The other thing is that the San Francisco Police Department, and particularly a lieutenant there who I really want to give a shout out to. Uh, his nickname was Lieutenant Jack, Jack Ballantyne. He protected uh, um, uh, the he protected the people in the AIDS organization. He protected us as lawyers. You know, we were you know, of course, once we started defending, you know, uh, um, uh, the both the people and the organizations from that group, we became targets. 
So he he just it was like Dragnet. If you grew up yeah. here at a certain point, you always looked at Dragnet. Um, uh, he he he. Lieutenant Jack was always in the neighborhood, and he was always dropping by to see we were safe. He was always dropping by at court proceedings. He was uh, dropped by at sort of dinners uh, where those people were going to show up, and was just really incredibly. Uh, behind the scenes there to make sure that people were safe, which they were not at that point. I mean, those people were desperate, they were dangerous, and they were true believers. Yeah, I mean, there's a huge tragedy about this. I mean, many of the, I think most of the protractors um, from that side are, 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 are dead, are no longer with us. And the, the same is true for, uh, this sort of comes in waves. There was a wave of AIDS denialism in the UK in the early 90s, and it was called Gays Against Genocide. And it, it actually, it's one of the things that really got me more involved in uh, in advocacy. But but there is something about the, the human condition, something that, that really makes us want to uh, ignore more than that, willfully defy the evidence that is in front of us. And and you mentioned um, uh, the fight in reproductive health, and it, it sort of brings me on to your leadership in women's rights and women's advocacy. And I wanted to the ex- you know to the extent possible, you can strike similarities between what you've seen in HIV and what you've seen in the mobilize the transformation of the role of women in society. Let me say something else first about the AIDS denialists and that period of time. The the what I want to say about that is that first of all, that is an arena where lawyers and courts can be very effective. You know, uh, um, uh, we got bubble zone injunctions mm. against uh, all of those people. Bubble From, zone. What does that mean? It means like a certain amount, uh, like of. Uh, um, basically feet, a hundred feet from, you know, individuals and the organization itself. You know, those people can't come. Otherwise, you can call and have them, you know, dragged off to jail. And, uh, you know, they're they're very controversial and have been controversial in the reproductive rights aspect because you're always mitigating the First Amendment right to protests versus the right of certain people who are prone to violence to, you know, to cross those lines. So that's really, so the courts really stood up there. I mean, those are very controversial injunctions, and there were two different judges in San Francisco who protected both the organizations and the individuals who were subject to attack. Um, The second thing I want to say that I just is... um, I, I can't say very specifically in terms of organizations or the individuals who, you're right, are mostly dead, but uh, the organizations involved who and the individuals involved who they viciously attacked took care of them at the end of their lives. Mm. And so what I learned from that, and uh, um, uh, and it's just it was just such a life lesson, is that what matters is who we are, not who they are. And a part of our mission is to take care and provide comfort to people who are dying of HIV. That's what they're, we're going to do, no matter what harm they caused you know, during their lives uh, for whatever their reasons were. So, and, and that can be, can be broadened. I mean, if it is our mission to, 
to serve and to care. We will do that regardless. Yes, exactly. But I, I think it took a lot of leadership from the organizations, uh, you know, who, you know, were also responsible for the safety of the people who were providing care yeah. to those and, folks. And I think that that story is is true all over the world. Um, uh, yeah, these people ended up uh, being cared for by the very people they uh, they were opposed to so 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 violently. Um, but I can't believe I'm doing this. I'm trying to get you back to women's rights. I know, so. <laughs> I know. I feel like I'm sort of having to choose, and you know, it's really well. For don't me, choose. Tell never me. Never been a choice. Yes. You know? Tell me about that. Okay. Well, in thinking about what you might ask today, you know, it uh, what really came to mind is that um, uh, women's rights to me have been so just part of uh, you know the fabric uh, of um uh, gay rights if you w- want to use mm. that term as opposed to specifically about hiv because uh, when i came into you know practice and into this work you know there was just such an alliance you know we all saw ourselves as sometimes under attack you know mostly um not included mm. um uh, sometimes uh, you know not welcome and uh, um but almost always misunderstood you know in terms of our motivations and so it's it's just been a uh to me a very seamless um uh, uh perspective i guess is what you'd call yeah. it so uh, when I went to MoFo in the in the mid seventies, there was kind of a cohort of women, you know, like uh, you know, instead of like one or two here and there, you know, I came in with a group, you know, and so there were more of us than just uh, you know mm. one or two here and there. So we, you know, with the support particularly of our gay male colleagues just full out had these just ridiculous discussions about whether or not there would be maternity leave and whether it would be paid for and uh, whether or not, and I've, I've just got to live, give a lot of credit to my women who became my women partners who would sit there and calmly talk to, you know, some retrograde, uh, you know, male partners who were in charge about, well, that's okay. You know, I guess I could come in right after I had the baby. Of course, I'd be, you know, bleeding all over the chair and expressing breast milk, and that would be perhaps uncomfortable for the clients I would need to, you know, be um, uh, working with that day. But if that's the way you really feel about it, you know, you know, yeah, 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 yeah you know. It, 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 it sort of brings it back to me. I mean, the same with harm reduction. You know, we've, we now have, uh, what we think are established practices. Um, there are still, of course, countries that wouldn't provide maternity leave to uh, to young mums uh, in the workplace. But but I guess the, th- the, the big question that I've been wanting to ask you is to what extent do you think these uh, are new traditions that are established? How fragile are we? And, and, and particularly in, you know, 2020, as we look forward to an era of uh, we're in the middle of an era of populism right around the world, and the norms that we thought we'd created are, are under threat like never before. Do you, 
you know, do you see these as established or do we have to keep fighting for them? Oh, I think we have to keep fighting for them. You know, every minute of every day, I think they're completely fragile. And, uh, you know, I, I think that there has been um, uh, in this country, you know, just a realignment of, you know, if you're going to do business here, whether as a big law firm or a company or whatever else, uh, you know, notwithstanding what the law is, you just have to provide uh, the um, a situation in which uh, you know talented professionals or other people can work in your workplace. So the to the extent you can li- align it with self interest, perhaps perhaps they are a little less fragile. I'm I'm kind of an optimist in the sense where I think on the one hand our legal rights are under threat. You know, in terms of reproductive rights, that's, I'm sure, completely obvious to everyone. Um, the, but what that often promotes is that people more generally say, yikes, you know, these are, and, uh, and they become politically engaged. And uh, they start changing, you know, the people that they vote for at the local level, at the state level, at the uh, federal level, you know, because all of a sudden these rights that the courts have protected, you know, are truly under threat. So that's where I'm an optimist is that the courts are not democratic institutions. There are things you can accomplish through it uh, during certain periods of time. But what really protects uh, us uh, is, you know, all of us, you know, voting for people who are going to, as I said earlier, get shit done. And, and talk about um, get shit done. I mean, the, the years that you and I were, were working with Pangea, I mean, coming back to harm reduction, I mean, we had programs in China, in Tanzania, in Oakland, and, and this, was, this was implementing essentially the, the hard fought for achievements that you and others from the legal, from the medical profession, from the advocacy movement, Martin Delaney, Pat Christen and others had got during that sort of 19, uh, early to mid 1990s phase. And I'm really interested in how you remain optimistic and, and sort of what, you know, beyond beyond the um, the foundation of the courts, what it is that sort of, you know, inspires you and helps you to keep pushing people to move move forward it's the fact that uh, you know i still know all those people you know they're still um uh, fighting and expanding you know the group of people you know that are fighting and what they're fighting for you know so those bonds that we all formed early in the epidemic you know those are still intact, and they've only, you know, expanded and gr- and grown to, you know, just a huge number of people who felt like they could, like things were kind of okay. You know, in my profession at my age, I know a lot of lawyers, you know, who are retired, mm. right? But not a single one of them that I know isn't uh, asking me, you know, uh, what can I do? Where can I go to do voter protection in 2020? There was an army of lawyers uh, in Nevada in mm. 2016 and 2018 from San Francisco, from the San Francisco legal community. 
this afternoon, I'm going to a, um, a meeting of a group of women lawyers plus a few non-lawyers who are still active from that time. They're called the change agents, appropriately <laughs> enough, you know. And uh, we're, you know, this is a this is a group of uh, women I grew up with in the city yeah. and that I adore, you know. And uh, they're not stopping. They're more energetic than they ever were. I probably, if things were different, if 2016 would have been different, you know, would have lost touch with them, Mm. you know, but uh, we're like, you know, we're a pretty fearsome and awesome group. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. (laughs) You know, I I feel as if we're really only skimming the surface of of many of the issues that are really important to to a shot in the arm podcast, to, to the sort of the the intersection of health and human rights. Now, um, before we wrap up, and I, I, I really don't normally ask this of guests, but but what have I missed? What have we missed? What what really do we need to, to, to make sure that our, our, our listeners and viewers need to know? That is such a great question. Um, uh, the I feel like uh, our listeners and viewers need to know is that, um, first of all, we got this. Yeah. You know, with their help, we got this, you know, and that it's really just about saying yes and yes and yes to the situation that exists now and fighting for it and doing everything. It's just like uh, during the epidemic when everyone was dying and we didn't know if there would ever be, you know, let alone a cure, you know, any people's, you know, longevity. It's, uh, we have to be here for the cure. And yeah. it's like an all hands on deck situation. And so I've, I find myself saying that really listening to and reading a lot about people who knew they weren't going to be around mm. for the solution. You know, the activists who know they're not going to be around, who are too old, too sick, you know, to, um, uh, you know, to, something to really be an optimist you know but it's it's about what one of my fabulous older mentors at uh, mofo told me at some point is that you know he's at an age where he probably shouldn't but he still buys green bananas <laughs> <laughs> right because they will ripen they will ripen but maybe his grandkids or his kids will eat them yeah Right. Yeah. Well, I I am quite sure there is there is uh, much more passion, much more vigor um, in the work that you are doing and, and your leadership, Kathy. Uh, thank you so much for agreeing to come on uh, the show. It's been an absolute delight and honor to have you and to 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 you know hear your perspective on what happened and its relevance to our future. Kathy Fisher, you are a shot in the arm. Thank you, Ben. Well, that's it for this episode. Hope you've enjoyed the show. We would love to know your thoughts on the subjects we've covered and the issues you think we ought to address. Please contact us through the usual social networks, including Twitter and Facebook at Shot Arm Podcast. Our thanks go to our producer and director, Eric Aspera of NewsDoc Media, and to Brian Ragas and our intern, Will Lansdale. This episode is dedicated to the life of Christian Kroll, who died recently, 
Now, I had the honor of serving with Christian while he was and I were at UNA's, and he led the UNODC's HIV strategies in the 2000s through some very, very choppy political waters. The world is a much better place because of him. Thank you, Christian. And thanks to you for joining us. Have a great week, everyone.